0: Over 10 years, we'd been trying to do everything we could to numb the pain of emptiness in our lives. But I remember it very vividly, Ben asked me, do you think maybe we're supposed to be parents?
1: But I mean, in all honesty, at that time, having a kid was just kind of like another thing to just kind of fill the hollowness in in my life. But the journey that that put us on was what became significant because we started to pray.
0: So through several different doors, we ended up adopting from Thailand.
1: The first time I held Solomon in my arms, having prayed and asked several times for forgiveness for the things I'd done in the past, when I held him, I just felt like I'd been truly forgiven.
0: We spent another year or so struggling, having an addiction to alcohol and drugs, and that just was not okay with me. So I found out about a church that met in a bar, and I thought, I could do that. I'll go to that church that meets in a bar.
1: Fortunately, God, placed us in in a good Christian fellowship where people were asking tough questions and where people had answers to struggles that we had had in the past and all these things that I had been seeking for answers in, I found them in Christ almost on this journey with him
0: I've learned that God didn't distance himself from our suffering, that he loves us and that he entered into our suffering. I've also learned that, you know, that he came to earth to die on a cross, but um, he didn't stay dead and he rose from the dead. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within us. If the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within me, that changes
2: everything. Well, good morning and happy Easter, everybody. That's when you're supposed to say, happy Easter something like that. Oh, my gosh. All right. So check it out. Uh, grab your Bibles. Turn to First Corinthians chapter 15. Resurrection chapter that Paul gives us. We're going to read these verses out loud. If you come without a Bible down the center aisle of seats is a Bible underneath uh, one of those seats. You're welcome to grab that as we work through the scriptures today, uh, starting in verse one. Let's read these out, out loud together. in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then the 12 then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep this is the word of the lord let's pray father we thank you for this beautiful day weatherwise it's a it's a gorgeous day but also it's a great day in the history of the church because this is the day that we celebrate Easter, the resurrection, Jesus is alive. And so, Lord, we come as your people today. We come as skeptics and doubters. We come as people who are convinced beyond a doubt that Jesus not only lived, but he lived and died and rose again. And I pray that as we open your scriptures today and talk about uh, what others have believed and written in regards to this topic, the resurrection that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see more clearly, but more importantly, our hearts to embrace what you would have us to believe is true. And I pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So we're in the midst of a six-week series that we're calling Dealing with Doubts. And really, our goal has been to look at the popular objections and doubts that have been raised in regards to religion in general, but more in particular, the Christian faith. Um, And I think this is true. Everyone doubts. All of us, from the person who says they don't believe in God at all to the person that really has a mature faith, we have seasons or moments or even um, years uh, that we struggle with certain aspects of religion or the Christian faith. And so The exhortation for all of us, at least during this series, is don't just doubt and stay there, but deal with your doubt. Investigate, look, search, um, and try to make make yourself more informed so that you aren't just staying where you are. Deal with your doubt. And so this is where we have been. We started with asking, we're basically asking a question each each week, uh, a question that culture is asking in regards to religion or faith or Christianity. And so we, actually, we started with uh, the very hard question of, can there only be one true religion? And then we went to a harder question. How can a good God allow suffering and evil? Uh, last week, Nick uh, preached a great sermon on, has science disproved Christianity and the Bible? And today, obviously, we are looking at the resurrection and those who would, would doubt it. And then uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll look at, you know, another hard question. How can a loving God send people to hell? And then we'll finish on the truth of the gospel that the Bible portrays, those things that should be good for us. And so in that regard, some of Christianity's most audacious claims are made right at the center of faith. And the center of faith for the Christian is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Um, the gospel is something that really that all Christians, regardless of what flavor of Christian you are, uh, agree on. And we read it already in our text. Paul says to the church at Corinth, he's like, hey, fellas, I'm reminding you of the gospel, the good news that I preach. And by the way, I didn't make this up. It was given to me. I received it from Jesus himself. And he goes on to tell us in verse 3 and verse 4 what the gospel is. He says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. It means that it was written, prophesied before, and then it actually happened. Verse 4, he says that Jesus was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Um, I happened to be looking at the news on my phone, which I always do. Um, it's one of my habits. And I ran across this article, Guardian.com, uh, secular uh, online news article. And the article wasn't Christian in any way. But the question that the author asked was this. What's the historical evidence that Jesus Christ lived and died? And he goes on to tell us that it's beyond um, evidential that there is a historical Jesus that the Jews the Greeks, the Romans, the Christians have all verified you know through personal witness and the testimony of history there was a man named Jesus that lived during the first century there 's a man named Jesus that was uh, murdered by crucifixion by the Romans, so we can 't refute that Jesus lived here 's where the refutation starts. Did that same Jesus actually Die to live again. Was he raised from the grave? And that's the idea that Jesus was raised, that the resurrection, that's not only the bull's eye of the gospel, it's the point where people begin to doubt, and that's the people, the point where people begin to object Christianity. The notion that a first century Jewish man crucified between two common thieves was actually God and rose from the dead is hard for many people to believe. And it's hard because in all of our experience, no one beats death. Even if you're lying on an operating table, um, you know, that, that thing, whatever that thing is called, that, that shows your heartbeat and it stops, flat lines. I mean, doctors use those things and bring you back to life. I mean, that person's died to live, but they're going to die again. But the scriptures inform us is that Jesus actually beat death. But again, that's hard for us to believe because we weren't there. We didn't see it. So if you struggle with belief in the resurrection, um, you're in the right place this morning. If you struggle with belief in the resurrection, you're in good company because history in the Bible would tell us the story of the resurrection is actually riddled with objection and those who doubt. In fact, the Greeks, the Romans, countless Jews, even Jesus' own friends had objections and they doubted. One of the most popular objections to the resurrection is the empty tomb and that the eyewitnesses were fabrications. And this objection is surrounded by the claims that the four gospel narratives were written decades after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, which is true. And that the resurrection stories were circulated orally for decades before they were actually written down, which is true. So there are elements of truth to that particular claim. But here's the the, the caveat to that. The first accounts of the empty tomb and eyewitness accounts weren't found in the Gospels, per se. They were found in Paul's letters, the very letter that we're reading. This one, also 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, and that brings us to our text. What we need to know about Paul and his writing in 1 Corinthians and partially 2 Corinthians is that these were the earliest accounts chronologically of the resurrection, So Paul's letter to Corinth was actually written before the Gospels, before the biographies of, of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about 15 to 20 years after Jesus died on the cross. Verse 6 is the verse in particular that I want us to look at for just a couple seconds. Here's what Paul writes. Then he appeared, then he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. Um, Paul is making a, a radical statement here about Jesus, about the resurrection. He's insisting that the resurrection isn't a metaphor, it's not a symbol. What he's saying is the risen Jesus not only appeared to individuals, he didn't just appear to small groups of people, he appeared to a whopping 500 people at one time, at the same time. Most of them, he says, who were still alive at the time of his writing. These are important details, and it wouldn't have been hard to corroborate what Paul was saying. Paul's letter, of course, he wrote this to a local church, the church at Corinth. But this letter, which would become become the scripture that we're reading now, inspired by God, was open to the public for anyone to see. It's written during the, the Pax Romano. It's the Peace of Rome. So there were no open civil wars going on in the Roman province. The roads would have been safe and easy to travel. So Paul is saying, hey, if you want to check out this story, that actually there's bunches of people that saw Jesus who was dead, now alive. All you got to do is go search them out, hear their names. This is where they live. That's what he's, he's basically telling us. Here's another interesting note regarding to the eyewitnesses of the tomb, that it was empty. And we find this in the Gospels, the, bi- the biographies of Jesus. And it's simply this. The first people to arrive on the scene of the tomb to see Jesus or to see the empty tomb were women. Now, for most of us in the 21st century, I mean, that deserves, a, I mean, so what? I mean, that that doesn't raise our interest. It doesn't pique our interest at all. But it, it carries significant um, significance. Uh, in a first century context, Tim Keller, uh, his book in the Reason for God, is a book that we're basing uh, a lot of this series on and Tim Keller, in this book writes women 's low status low social status in the first century meant that their testimony was not admissible evidence in court. There was no possible advantage to the church to recount that all the first witnesses were women not only po- uh, the only possible explanation for why a woman uh, for why women were depicted as meeting Jesus first is that they really had now, I was going to bring a, a little book show in here to um, not impress you with books, but I mean just the, to see help you see some of the uh, i mean the the current uh, catalogs of books that have been written. On the resurrection, perhaps the, the the latest and most acclaimed historical scholarship done on the resurrection is by an Anglican uh, bishop, N. T. Wright. And uh, Dr. Wright has written a three-volume uh, New Testament series, the last of which, Jesus, Son of God, is, is strictly on the resurrection. And Dr. Wright, in particular, um, argues that for there to have been enormous pressure. From the early uh, excuse me there would have been enormous pressure for the early church leaders to change the eyewitness of the women getting to the tomb first because it would have been offensive to a, to this patriarchal society what he's saying is if it didn't happen they wouldn't have said it happened because it't have that, that just wouldn't have happened in that society it turns out they didn't change the story they couldn't why because the news that Jesus who was dead who's now alive would have spread like a wildfire. Bishop Wright goes on to say, the first eyewitness accounts of the resurrection would have been electrifying and life-changing. It would have passed along and been retold in an oral oral culture more than any other stories about the life of Jesus. And then uh, Dr. Wright goes on to argue or to explain that there are two main theories that attempt to explain away the resurrection. The first, that the body was stolen, that Jesus' disciples came, and somewhere in the night, in those three days, they came and took the body. And of course, uh, that was predicted, Uh, Matthew 27 and 28. The the Pharisees and the chief priests kind of remembered that, didn't this this guy say he was going to be raised in three days? And so what did they do? They put extra guards guarding the tomb. There were actually Roman soldiers that were witnesses of the resurrection, along with the women that were there. And what did those guards do? Upon the resurrection, they went and told the Pharisees and the chief priests, hey, guess what? He resurrected. He's out of the tomb. And the chief priests and the Pharisees paid him off, paid him money to, um, to spread the rumor that Jesus' body had been stolen by, uh, by his disciples. Here's the second theory, that people were experiencing grief-induced visions. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Like, like ooh. I would tell you, this kind of thing happens even today. So it's not—it's you know—it's—it's it's kind of mysterious, but it's not definitely not um, uncommon. It would be like you just going through extreme grief and having a, a close loved one or friend that you really miss. You're grieving, and all of a sudden, in your house, in the bathroom, out outside, as you're in the mall somewhere, you think you see a sighting. You think you see the person that you loved and are grieving. That happens today, and it happened in the first century. And so here's what Dr. Wright says in regards to that. There wasn't just an empty tomb. There were sightings of Jesus in his resurrected state, a real Jesus, like a real, like walking, talking Jesus, like in the flesh, the marks of crucifixion on his body. He let people touch him, although he had a glorified body. A walking, talking, real Jesus that ate fish along the Sea of Galilee with some of his closest closest friends post resurrection. So, Mister Wright says, the stolen body theory can't be possible. And then he adds, and there weren't just sightings of Jesus, the tomb actually was empty, because we have all of these witnesses that say that it was. And Wright argues, these two factors, sightings and empty tomb together leads a reasonable person to conclude that Jesus actually was raised from the grave. That's the first objection. Here's the second one. First century people were simplistic and predisposed to the supernatural. And the argument here is that the ancient people were biased towards the supernatural so that they wouldn't, I mean, they would easily have accepted something like someone being raised from the grave. Um, C.S. Lewis says there's a problem with this. This is called chronological snobbery. It's where a modern people like us assume a backwardness on an ancient culture that they, will, they are susceptible to believing things that we, because we are advanced and intelligent and smart, would never believe. For example, uh, it would be like saying the first century believed in miracles. We believe in science. The first century people, they were simplistic. They believe in myths like the resurrection, whereas we are enlightened. And of course, the objection uh, is proved false when you survey just what the first century Mediterranean people believed. The two basic worldviews, in the first century, the Greeks and the Jews. Those were the dominant worldviews. The Greeks believed that the soul was pure and the body was bad. And so to suggest to a Greek that the body had resurrected from the grave would have sounded ridiculous to them. The Greeks, uh, to the Greeks, the body was the prison that you sought to escape. It wasn't something you wanted your Savior to have, and it wouldn't have been something that would have made sense to them. Same thing with the with the Jews. For the Jews, their savior, the one that was going to come to them, the central point of their of their narrative and of their theology was this coming Messiah. The Messiah was to be this warrior figure who was going to come in and free uh, the uh, the Jewish nation from all kinds of oppression. the The Messiah would rule politically. He would rule socially. He would end oppression. In fact, a rabbi was once asked, "Is Jesus?" the Messiah, and the rabbi answered with this. He said, Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah because death and oppression continued. Disease and justice continue. If the Messiah were here, he would, he would have ended all that. We would be in a state of utopia, and everything would be right with us and with the world. Because everything isn't right with us and with the world, and also because we're in the middle of history, there couldn't have been a resurrection, and Jesus couldn't have been the one that was the Messiah who was resurrected. And so a body of the resurrection would have been just as crazy to the folks of the first century as it perhaps is to many of us today. Here's a third objection. This is my last one. I could go on with objections, but this is the last one we'll look at today, and then we'll look more at our, at our text. This is the argument of worldview. Uh, this comes from Tim Keller's book, Explosion of a New Worldview. Worldview is defined just like it sounds. It's your view of the world, it's the lens from which you look at uh, your, you look at your life and look at the world. Our worldviews are formed from the day we're born through the, uh, our dying days. It's formed by the family that you gr- that you grow up in, the generation and era that you live in, uh, the country that you uh, live, you know, where you dwell. Uh, all the things that are put before you in terms of the news. It's the filter. It's, way, it's how we filter out and make sense of our world. And perhaps the the greatest argument for the resurrection is what actually happened to the disciples, and this is what happened: Their worldview changed here's the, here's the, the thing we need to know about worldviews. A worldview can and does change, but if you look at how history has unfolded, it usually takes um, not just days or centuries but perhaps even thousands of years for the cultural shift in how we think and act and view the world that we're living in to change. If you would take, for example, the era that we're living in, going from pre-modern to modern to the postmodern era, hundreds of years in there. It's taken all that time for us to be where we are in terms of our thinking about who we are and our position in the world. But here's what happened with the disciples. Their worldview literally changed Overnight, And here's why. It's what Paul says in verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. Look at verse 5. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What's the common commonality in, in those verses? He appeared. Jesus appeared. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to people uh, that could verify that, yeah, this is, this is Jesus. We knew him to be the one that walks around doing miracles. We knew him to be the one that walked around saying that he was going to die and rise again. And it looks like he has actually done that. Jesus appeared to all these people. We also read this in the Gospels. And, you know, it would be easy for us after all these objections and all this, this rhetoric about Jesus and and the resurrection to say, well, weren't Jesus' disciples like hoping and wishing and thinking that was going to happen? I mean, they were his homeboys, right? But if you know the history of Christianity and how it spread in the Roman Empire the reason Christianity exploded wasn 't because of these few small apostles. Think about it. there was only twelve of them, eleven after Judas betrayed jesus here 's what happened. Jesus appeared post resurrection to hundreds of people, and those people it 's almost like rumor mill right how 's a rumor start? One person tells one other person, one other person tells another person, and before before long you have this heaping rumor. It was the same thing. a whole bunch of people, hundreds of people told their friends, that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they went out because they believed it and told their friends. And then Christianity goes from this small, unassuming, insignificant sect of people who were called the Jesus Way into one of the most dominant religions, overtaking paganism in the Roman province, and pretty soon being one of the dominant religions in the known world at that time. So some would say, what about the thought that this was a hallucination? Now, I'm not going to superimpose any kind of background on most of y'all, but even if you've done a little bit of drugs or known somebody who did drugs, here's what you know. All right, we can both take some drugs and have our own individual hallucination, but hallucinations don't happen in groups, right? All right, maybe you don't know. I'm telling you, it don't. <laughs> don't read into that. Stop it. But well, what about the thought that this was all a big hoax? If you know the story think about it all of Jesus closest friends not only that all the people all the 2nd and 3rd century people who would become leaders of the church almost all to uh count died a martyr's death died in pain and suffering for what they believe they literally went to the grave confessing that Jesus is not dead he's alive to the glory of God the father And I would tell you, that's a lot of commitment if it was a hoax. Perhaps after all that, you're hearing all this stuff and you're saying, I just can't accept this resurrection thing. It just doesn't make sense. And my response would be to you, it didn't make sense to the early disciples either. It actually didn't. They didn't know what was going on. All they knew, Jesus was dead. Now he's alive. And they had to deal with that. And I think we have to deal with it as well. You see, you just can't stay in your doubt. I think the, the mature thing to do would be to deal with your doubt. And how do we deal with our doubt? It means we investigate it. We ask questions. We ask questions of, of history. We ask questions of, of those who have the skill to, to research. But we ask questions of ourselves, because if we're not having faith in God, we have put our faith in something else that's replaced faith in him. We do our homework. We buy big books like N.T. Wright's books and Tim Keller's book, and we do some reading. We read what skeptics have written. We read what believers have written, and we sort of work this out. We struggle with all the issues. Now, that's the resurrection. That is the issue for Christianity. If you can disprove the resurrection, then you have unhinged Christianity. So far, it hasn't happened. There's still people who are coming to faith believing that Jesus was dead and he's still alive, which proves that he's God and he's alive today. But here's the thing, and I think this is the thing that we need to discuss on Easter. Most of us aren't stuck on these objections. Most of us aren't denying the facts that have been proven by history. Most of us have perceived by faith that Jesus is alive, even today. But here's the thing. Many of us have pragmatic issues about the resurrection. Here's what we say. Jesus rose from the dead. All right, so what? What does that matter to me? I mean, am I right? That's what, that's, that's, I mean, I mean, these are my words, right? What does that matter to me? What difference does it make? Here's where, here's where this chapter comes in, in to help us, and we got to read these words for ourselves and, and put them into our own context. This whole chapter is about the resurrection after articulating the gospel here's what paul does for us he goes on to tell us about the implications of the gospel and he lays it out very clearly in verse 12 to 19 he's arguing it's like a rhetorical argument he says well why are you saying that there's no resurrection if in fact christ has been raised from the dead but i would tell you if no one has been raised from the dead if there's no such thing as a resurrection then christ has not been resurrected and if Christ has not been resurrected, then you and I who call ourselves Christians, we're living a lie. We of all, of all people, verse 19, to be pitied, we are fools if we have put our faith in all this stuff. And it's not true. And then he goes on in verse 20 through 28, and he tells us that Christ is the first fruits, the first fruits of the resurrection. and Here's the beauty of this. He says, as Christ is, so we shall be. As Christ was resurrected, so shall we be. In verse 35 35 through 49, he tells us what resurrection looks like, and he concentrates on the body. And he says some interesting things. He said, God is going to give us the body that he chooses. It's like a grain of wheat that that's sown into the ground that dies and then it germinates and comes back to life and proves fruitful. Think Good Friday, two days ago, as Saju broke over John 12, 24. It's that same parable. And then in verse 42, he just gives us, I mean, just some interesting words in terms of what resurrection looks like for us in our bodies. He says, verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, what's sown is perishable, what's raised is imperishable. What's sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And then as he closes this letter on the resurrection, he starts talking about death. I'm going to read verses 50 through 55. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Beautiful words. Or, or, I mean, what do they mean? Y'all get all that? Of course, he's talking about death. He's giving us a picture of it, and he's juxtaposing uh, the body that we live in now, in the flesh, perishable, mortal, with what it's going to be, after the resurrection, but as he centers on this idea of death, this is what he concludes. Death has a sting. The, the Greek word for sting here uh, has the idea of poison. When we think of the word sting, what do you think of? Zzz, right, bee. All right, so most, well, not most of us, a lot of us are, are afraid of bees because if you've ever been stung by a bee, you're, you don't want that, right? Um Check it out. Don't be afraid of bees. They're defensive. They're just trying to do their own thing, pollinate in the earth, and I don't ever know what else they do. Make honey, right? <laughs> i got a great story about honeybees that invaded our house in North Carolina. I don't have time to tell you about it, but ask me later, right? Ask me later. So here's the thing. If you've been stung by a bee, you know it's not necessarily the stinger penetrating your, your skin that actually affects you. It's the poison. It's the, it's the venom that's coming through that stinger that's going to cause a wound and actually going to cause you to hurt a little bit. Here's what Paul is saying. Death has a sting. Death has a sting even to the believer in that the believer's body is to be under the power of death. That is until the resurrection. And then he unpacks what this death, of the, the sting of death is in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. Very simply, the sting of death is the sin in us, and sin gets its power from the law. Let me unpack this a little bit more. Here's what the law is. We can look at the law a couple ways. The law is external, and it's internal. The Old Testament tells us that the law is God's rules for our life. It's his commandments. It expresses his will and his way his character. The law tells me how I'm supposed to live, the laws I'm supposed to apply comply with. The law is like a mirror. What does a mirror do? It reflects what I look like, who I am. The law tells you about your imperfections, right? That's what the, the law does for us. But the law is also internal. and in the Old Testament and then the New Testament would also tell us that intuitively, I've already got the law written on my heart. So somewhere in here, I know the things that I'm supposed to do. I know the standards that God has put in the world of what right is and what wrong is. And so I got an an external law that's guiding my life, but I also have an internal law that's sort of like telling me what to do. And intuitively, here's the thing that I know about both of those, that the law is telling me I don't measure up to God's standards. Sting of death. I don't measure up to God's standards. At some point, there's going to be an accounting. A justice has to be made and served for the sins, the, the, the way that I've lived my life. And we preview the sting of death all the time. If you feel far from God, you're previewing the sting of death. If you ever think about dying, you're previewing the sting of death. Ancient philosopher Epicurus wrote this, if you could literally, uh, if you could be totally sure that death meant annihilation or extinction, most of us would be all right. We wouldn't fear it. But the problem is that none of us can be sure that there's nothing, that there's not a judgment or an accounting at the end of death. Isn't that the truth? If it were just, I'm going to live my life and then I'm going to die and there's nothing else, we wouldn't have a worry in the world. I mean, we would like pote like it's today and tomorrow. Absolutely, I can see some of y'all like yes, I would, <laughs> right? But here's the thing, here's the problem: we cannot be sure. We don't know, and we're reminded constantly of the fear that there might be something else after death that I am held accountable for. And that's what the sting of death is. Here's what the Bible says. Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The Bible says every person will stand before God and account for how we've dealt with the sting of death. We've dealt with our sin. The Bible says that we will be, we have to give an account for how we have complied with the law of God. We'll stand before God as sinners, sinners by nature, sinners by choice, we'll have to give an account for what we've done with the sin problem. And this is where I stand up, I raise up some flags, they're white, and I wave them like this, and I say, there's good news. Don't do yourself in. It's not the end of the game. There's good news. The Bible tells us that Jesus doesn't come to bring judgment, but to bear it. We talked about this on Good Friday. That's why Good Friday is good. And Paul says this at the beginning of his his letter. He says, hey, brothers, I'm waving a white flag. Guess what? I want to remind you, I've talked to you about I talked to you about this before. It's the gospel. I've got good news for you. What's the good news? Verse three, Jesus has died for your sin. That's good news for you, folks. Jesus has died for your sin. Now, let me not get too excited because we all have another problem. If, if you hear that Jesus died for your sin and nothing else, then you're woefully inadequate. You, you can't do anything with that. Without the resurrection, it wouldn't matter. It'd be pointless. If Jesus died and didn't resurrect, he, he didn't save you. He's just died as a good man for perhaps what he thought was a good cause. Without the resurrection, sin and death still rules today. That's why Paul says in verse 16 and 17, if I can find it. Come on, glasses. He says, for if, if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Here's what the resurrection is. It's the cosmic receipt that God has dealt with the problem of death and the problem of sin. And that's my main problem but that's also your main problem. We have to deal with those problems. Thank God, the Bible tells us, and we receive this by faith, Jesus has dealt with those problems for us, and he does that in the resurrection. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time, but there's one more important implication about the resurrection that we have to know. Most of us in this room, we don't question what's going to happen if we die tonight, for most of us. Maybe a few of you might, But for the most of us, we're secure in our faith. We've trusted Jesus for our salvation. And we know that, uh, I mean, if if I should die tonight, then I'm going to be in the presence of God. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Resurrection is going to happen. That's our great hope. But some of us here today actually do wake up. uh, Think about waking up tomorrow. Just living life, right? I think 80% of us in this room aren't skeptics Perhaps 60% of us in this room never worry about death, but 100% of us in this room are thinking about just living life, making it in the world that we live in today. And so if you're thinking about that, you're thinking about the pragmatic concerns of, of life, and Paul does address this as well. Through the resurrection, God has not only dealt with the penalty of sin on our behalf, that's Good Friday, got it on the cross in your place for your sin the Bible tells us He will also deal with the presence of sin in our lives. That means we'll get new bodies equipped for a new heaven and a new earth. And then here's what the Bible tells us as well. Through the resurrection, Jesus deals with the power of sin in our lives. And I think this is where the rubber meets the road. It's living our lives in the power of the resurrection so that life isn't humdrum. We're not just grinding ourselves through, but there's joy. There's joy as we live. Our lives, perhaps there's hills and valleys, but there's actual joy that God gives us in his grace. I think the majority of of Christians believe that the Christian life is is really doing good, being good. Don't we live like that? I mean, we're trying to do right for God, but it ends up being a life of of duty. Many of us are motivated from the outside out. You're motivated by duty. I ought to obey. I should obey. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. And I think that describes the the majority of Christians. That's that's duty. And of course, if the Bible says we're supposed to not do some stuff and do some stuff, then, oh, yeah, we're supposed to do that. But we don't want that to be the impetus by which we live. We want to live from a perspective of, of delight and of joy. What the resurrection provides us is not outside in power, but inside out power, obedience that comes not just from duty, but delight. That's what we want to get to. That's what it means to be a Christian. So, being a Christian is realizing, and this is important, it realizes that someone else died so that I don't have to be as good as I'm trying to be. Here's the cool thing about Easter we celebrate the only person in the world who actually was good. Good from beginning to end, good all the way through good in his motives, good in his intentions, good in his actions, to his death. And so we get the the great opportunity to live our lives as best we can in the grace of God, but live it in the light of one who truly was good. You're free. You're free not to have to make yourself be good because Jesus was good for you. And I hope that frees you. And so we can stop trying to be good, which means you stop trying to be your own savior. It means you trust in Christ as to forgive you of your sins because you need to be forgiven. It means you surrender to Jesus as the leader of your life because none of us does a great job at leading ourselves. And that happens because God gives you the Holy Spirit to indwell in you. And the Holy Spirit provides not just some outside influence like an angel on your shoulder whispering to you when you, you know, those opportunities that you really should be good, like, be good right now, like you do to your kids. The Holy Spirit motivates us from the inside, and this is where resurrection power comes from. And so I hope that the next question that you're asking yourself is like, well, man, how do I get that? How do I get that kind of power? The Bible would say if you're a Christian, you already have it. That's what Paul says, Romans eight eleven. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We've come full circle. I don't know if you recognize this. The young lady in the video, they were a family who worshipped, who lost faith in Christ, and then went through all kind of life circumstances and trials before they would surrender to trying to make life work themselves and surrender themselves to the God who could give them joy amidst life's troubles. So they happened upon a church that met in a bar and they happened upon the scripture that said, hey, Jesus isn't dead. He's a real historical figure, but he also rose from the dead, which proves he's God. And if Christ died and raised from the dead, then God gives you the same spirit To dwell in you that raised him from the dead. That's not only good news, that's good power. Good power to live your life in the grace of God and to his glory. God doesn't give us, God doesn't just tell us to comply, He gives us the power to to do all that He asks us to do. Importantly, He gives us Himself. And He gives us Himself through the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And I think that's the Christian life. That's the power of the resurrection. So let me conclude with this. It would be one thing if Christianity was about religion and about some religious leader who was gregarious and went around being kind and nice to people and perhaps as he amassed great crowds, did some wonderful miracles that everybody went and talked about, and that guy eventually is going to die. But if the resurrection actually did happen, and that guy died, was buried, and he came back to life, it's as, as if the, the slogan says, the resurrection actually does change everything. And we've been called to, to submit our lives to that. If the resurrection is true, God has broken into our world, and this is what he's shouting. He's shouting, Jesus is King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He has come to give himself to you, he does that by the Spirit, but he also beckons you to surrender yourself to him. And he deserves that. This is the Christian life. This is the power of the resurrection. The resurrection isn't just important. It's essential for you that are Christians. And so if you're here today and you're a skeptic, then I would encourage you. You've got some research to do. But let me challenge you. The research has already been done. The books have already been written. There's enough people surrounding you even right now in your own life that are evidence of faith in their own life, that Jesus is not only real, he actually did resurrect from the grave. He's alive. Go talk to him. See why they believe what they believe. And, and, and pray to the God who resurrected and ask him to give you the revelation that you need that you might believe as well. If you're a Christian here today, then the exhortation on Easter is uh, you need to believe this not just in your head, not theological knowledge. In fact, that's how I pray for myself. Lord, I know, I know a lot. I've read a lot of books. I know a lot of Bible verses. But would you help this to go from my head to my heart, that I would live it as God would have me live it? Not because I have to, not because I ought to, because I want to, because God has given me great affection for who he is. That's what the resurrection means. That's why we celebrate Easter. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious day. Not only beautiful because the sun is shining, but beautiful because Jesus has risen. He's risen um, from the grave 2,000 years ago. He remains risen today, and he's risen even in our hearts. God, we rejoice at the thought that he's called us to himself, this risen Lord. God, today we, we declare anew, afresh, that Jesus is alive. He's not dead that he reigns in this world. He reigns in worlds yet to come. He reigns in our hearts. God, let, uh, let our words and our lives be a testimony like those who first saw Jesus out of the tomb, that he is alive. Let us proclaim it from the mountains. Let us proclaim it in our neighborhoods where we work, that we serve a risen Savior. And we pray that to his glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.